Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you love digging into the week's political headlines, subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our reporters take you behind the scenes of some of the biggest stories from the campaign trail to the halls of Congress. Just for our Inside the Hive listeners, save 15% on a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair with promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off one year of all you can read, watch, and hear. Today's episode is brought to you by Empower. It doesn't matter how much money you have, we all have money questions. Empower is here to answer those questions so you don't have to worry. Take control of your financial future with a real-time dashboard and real live conversations to empower what's next. Start today at empower.com. A lot of people spend a lot of money on things like skincare, fast fashion, and even surgery, all in the name of self-improvement. But as the price of perfection rises, when is it time to call it quits? I'm Rima Hreis, host of This Is Uncomfortable, a podcast from Marketplace. This season, we dig deep into the financial trappings of self-care and the real motivations behind our spending choices. Listen to This Is Uncomfortable wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Inside the Hive. I am your host, Nick Bilton. I have a very, very special guest with me today who I have known for a couple years now, um, who I wrote about uh, and ha- now has an incredible book out called Bad Blood, Secrets and Lies in a Silicon Valley Startup, which sounds as insane as the title. Uh, John Carrier, welcome to The Hive. Thank you for having me. Thanks for coming all the way out to LA to, to sit here with me and, and talk about this. Let's give like the... We're in an elevator. Uh, you just got in with someone who has no idea who Elizabeth Holmes or Theranos or this crazy story is. Can you just give us the, the elevated pitch as we go from floors eight to nine? Sure. So Elizabeth Holmes is a, a young woman who dropped out of Stanford in 2003 with a vision that she was going to revolutionize blood testing. And uh, she created a company called Theranos and uh, uh, her conceit was that she was going to uh, create a device that was going to uh, test uh, tiny samples of blood pricked from a finger and and be able to run the full range of lab tests on that tiny sample. And uh, uh, 10 years after she founded the company, she she, uh, rose to fame and started uh, gracing the covers of magazines and, and went live with her technology, her finger stick blood tests in Walgreens stores. And her company reached a valuation of $10 billion, and she had uh, kept half of the equity. And so uh, uh, she was worth uh, almost $5 billion, and she was the youngest self-made female billionaire in the world at that point. And so now comes along John Carreyou, and you are at the Wall Street Journal as a – what's your title? I'm an investigative reporter. And covering, I had covered uh, for most of the previous ten years uh, medical issues, uh, the healthcare system, the pharmaceutical industry. Um, I'd done a series on Medicare fraud and abuse, and so uh, really, uh, healthcare was sort of my specialty. Really, kind of difficult to understand, mundane topics. Often, yeah, yeah. So you so when was the first time you saw elizabeth holmes uh on a magazine or anything 
So she, she had really rocketed to fame in June of 2014 when she was on the cover of uh, Fortune magazine, uh, clad in a thin black turtleneck and uh, wearing bright red lipstick and looking uh, kind of deadpan at the, the camera and with a very catchy headline that said, this CEO is out for blood. I hadn't um, uh, noticed her yet at that point, and uh, she really uh, showed up on my radar about six months later when uh, Ken Oletta, the New Yorker writer, wrote a profile of her that was published in the New Yorker magazine in December of uh, 2014. And uh, I read that story on the subway coming back from uh, the journal where I work in Midtown Manhattan, heading back to Brooklyn. And uh, there were a couple of things in that story that struck me as off. Um, one of them was the notion that a college dropout who had uh, basically two semesters of chemical engineering classes under her belt had dropped out and uh, pioneered groundbreaking new medical science. Um, I know you know that you can do that with computers and, and programming and, and making photo sharing apps. Right, and and you know people like Mark Zuckerberg taught themselves how to code on their dad's computer at, at ten years old. But in medicine, that's not really how it works. You you have to. Uh, get the formal training, and then you often have to go to medical school, perhaps get a PhD, and then do years of research before you add value. You know, uh, most Nobel scientists in medicine win that prize in their 60s uh, after they've worked, you know, almost a lifetime at what they do. So I thought that that was odd. Uh, but to be fair, I probably wouldn't have done anything with it if I hadn't gotten a tip uh, uh, several weeks later. So I, it's funny, I remember reading that article and being a little, I, I know nothing about health reporting, but being a little slightly confused where when Ken Aletta said to, and Ken is an amazing reporter, so I, I it's not to diss on Ken here, but uh, there was a paragraph in there where Ken says, well, how does the machine work? And she says, well, there's a chemical reaction that happens when you put a chemical with another piece of chemical. And it's literally like a, like if you ask my three-year-old how you know dinner is made, it's, it's, it, it was his kind of response. Right. He called it comically vague. Yeah. And, um, and that uh, part of the story caught my eye as well. And I thought, you know, th- these are not the words of a sophisticated laboratory scientist. Uh, it sounded to me more like a, a high schooler uh, describing a, a chemistry experiment. And so that, that was another uh, one of the little nuggets in that story that struck me as, as odd. Um, but again, you know, I, I'm pretty certain I would not have done anything with uh, my intuition that, that there was something off here if I hadn't gotten a tip. And so we're going to come back to the tip because uh, I kind of want to get to some of the more salacious stuff first. Uh, but you get a tip uh, and you start investigating this. And we're going to fast forward to the crumbling of Elizabeth Holmes and, um, and Theranos. And we'll come back to, to, back, back, back to that moment in a bit. Uh, so today, Elizabeth Holmes, tell us where she is and what happened to the company. Amazingly, uh, Elizabeth Holmes, even though she's been now charged uh, with fraud by the the Securities and Exchange Commission, which, by the way, called the fraud a massive one, uh, an elaborate years-long fraud, Uh, even though she's been charged uh, with fraud, she reached a settlement uh, in which she neither admitted wrongdoing uh, nor denied it, and um, she uh, paid a half-million-dollar fine, relinquished most of her stock and her voting stake in the company, and uh, agreed to a, an officer-director ban for 10 years in a public company. Um, a lot of people think that 
that's a slap on the wrist um, and that it's not commensurate with the, the magnitude of the wrongdoing here. But um, she is still uh, CEO of, of Theranos. She conceded in an email to uh, Theranos investors about a month and a half ago that uh, the, the company would likely uh, cease to exist uh, by summer, by August. Is she the only employee still there or are there she, others? There are about 20 employees left. She laid off uh, uh, another 100 employees about two months ago and so there are about 20 employees left and they're sort of turning the lights off at this point. Um, so, so yeah, what are those people doing? What is she doing? So she, uh, until that layoff announcement about a month and a half ago, she still had two drivers driving her around in a, a black uh, Cadillac SUV, Cadillac Escalade SUV that, um, you know, was on the company's dime as well as two assistants. Um, and, and needless to say, you know, a lot of employees uh, didn't think that was appropriate anymore. Um, she is still uh, nominally heading uh, this shell of a company that, that's about to be liquidated. And uh, she is uh, now telling uh, people that she is going to start a new company. She's going to start a new company. Okay, well, well, before we get to the new company. So you, you come across this, 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 you get this tip, uh, and you start reporting on what's going on with this company. And things, of course, don't add up. Um, and you f publish your first story in the Wall Street Journal, and everyone remembers the story. It's this big bombshell. And there was an immediate reaction from Silicon Valley uh, where a lot of people were like, this is total bullshit. This guy is just trying to destroy this poor woman who's working hard. At the time when that happens, uh, what are you thinking? What's going on in your head? Are you like, uh, did I pick the fight with the wrong person? Am I wrong? Is it, What are you thinking at that moment in time? First of all, I was in New York, so I was on the other coast, and so I it I didn't fully get uh, uh, the the full picture of that reaction uh, from Silicon Valley, um, and and I also kept my head down because uh, I'd received uh, or I'd heard rumors among uh, ex employees of Theranos that there had just been an FDA inspection of the company, and I hadn't been able to confirm those rumors before that first piece was published. But the day that it was published, I uh, finally uh, made contact with an FDA source of mine who was able to confirm to me on deep background that an inspection had indeed uh, taken place and that the, the agency had taken away Theranos' little uh, proprietary blood vial and effectively uh, barred it from continuing to, to draw blood via finger prick, which was the whole point of the Theranos value proposition. And so I quickly was on deadline with that second day's story revealing that this uh, FDA inspection had happened and, um, and you know, uh, that, that the company was, was being crippled by the, the FDA's action. But as I was that evening, as I was uh, standing over the shoulder of a page one editor at the journal, uh, Elizabeth Holmes came on uh, the TV monitor because she um, had been... Jim Cramer? That's right. She had been invited uh, to, to sort of respond and rebut uh, the, the Wall Street Journal piece on Jim Cramer's Mad Money. And um, so we paused what we were doing, turned up the sound on the TV, and, uh, and she sort of played the, the part of the uh, brilliant uh, young tech founder who was under siege by um, a reporter who was in league with, uh, you know, the entrenched industry that she was trying to, to disrupt. Um, and, uh, you know, and I can't remember her exact words, but it was something about how... I remember. She, I remember because, so for people that don't know anything about Elizabeth Holmes, Elizabeth Holmes took on a persona uh, halfway through running this company 
that was a Steve Jobs-like persona where she wore a black turtleneck and had her hair dyed a different color and 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 so on. And um, and she actually, as most uh, wannabe Steve Jobsian people in the Valley do, she would quote him from time to time. And the first thing she said on Kramer was actually a quote that she took from Steve Jobs, which was, you know, sometimes they praise you and sometimes they come after you and whatever. Um, but uh, so, okay, so I, so this is where you and I meet, right? So I um, see this, this story happening. And again, you know, had seen all these articles all over the tech press about praising her. And I remember the first time I saw her speak, and I remember leaning over to the person sitting next to me and saying, it was actually a guy, uh, a producer in Hollywood, and saying that she's so full of shit. There's something about her story that doesn't add up. I didn't know what it was, obviously. Um, but I did a piece for Vanity Fair about you doing this story and how the tech press had completely missed it, uh, how they had just, oh, believe this person, written about her and so on. Do you think in looking at those pieces and knowing where we are today with the story that that the tech press should not have written about her because they didn't understand the technology or should they – was she just so manipulative and deceitful that they fell for it or was it a bit of both? Well, she – um, her her idol was Steve Jobs. She idolized Steve Jobs and, and Apple, and she really modeled herself after traditional uh, Silicon Valley, which is you know the the tech industry that is the descendant of the microprocessor industry from the from the sixties that became the the uh, personal computer industry, and then the internet boom in the nineties, and today it's smartphone apps and and smartphones, and uh, and she really modeled herself in that tradition. And she got the press to see her that way. Uh, the press kind of lost sight of the fact that actually her product wasn't a smartphone or a smartphone app. It was a medical product that doctors and patients relied on uh, to make important medical decisions. And in many ways, um, she should have modeled herself after perhaps the biotech industry, which uh, is clustered in South San Francisco, uh, north of the valley. Um, and, and so... The, the press sort of accepted the way she presented herself as a uh, member of the traditional Silicon Valley tech scene. And, and that was um, for sure a, a mistake to just accept that at face value. I will say, though, that you can't entirely blame the, the tech press because the, the first few publications, uh, or at least two of them uh, that come to mind that, that really put her on the map, three of them, the first publication that gave her airtime was the Wall Street Journal. It was my newspaper, and it was an op-ed writer uh, for the Wall Street Journal who uh, interviewed her and published a friendly interview in September of uh, 2013. And then the second uh, big piece about her was in Wired magazine, which is uh, a tech publication. The third piece, the piece really responsible for rocketing her to fame, was Fortune magazine, and uh, the guy who wrote that piece was Roger Parloff, and he was not a tech reporter. He, he's the legal correspondent uh, for uh, Fortune magazine, and, and I tell the story of how that, that piece came about. And then Ken Oletta came a few months later and wrote the profile that uh, got me to notice Theranos, and, and Ken is, is a great writer, but he's written mostly about media and technology and has not written about medicine. Um, and so it, it was sort of a, a cross-section of uh, journalists who, who gave her attention. Yeah. When you look at 
when you look at the story, so let's just, you know, go through some like quick beats here about in your book, you talk about some of the crazy things she did that were just unbelievably deceitful and lying. Uh, can you just give give listeners a few examples of some of those things? Well, the, the uh, prologue of the book is about a scene that takes place in November 2016 where uh, the chief financial officer of Theranos finds out that uh, the demos that they've been holding uh, for investors, for prospective investors uh, at the company's offices are, are bogus, that they're, they're not real, and that the, the blood test results um, that uh, the investors are given at the end of those demos are pre-recorded. And when he finds this out, um, you know, his, his jaw sort of drops because uh, he was under the impression that these demos were real. And he was certainly um, uh, giving the investors that he was bringing about around uh, that impression too. And so he goes to her office, to Elizabeth's office, and confronts her and says, you know, we really can't do this anymore. We, we, if the demos aren't fully real, we, we have to stop. And uh, she turns from sort of happy-go-lucky to... Um, uh, stone cold icy and uh, says to him um, you know you're not a team player you need to leave right now and it's clear that she she means not just leave my office but leave the company and he's just been fired and so this this takes place um, you know within three years of the the company's founding and, it, and it's uh, uh, about seven or eight years before she rises to fame and and my point in bringing it up is that it illustrates that she was behaving unethically uh, from a, a very early stage in the company, and that you know then then the the bright red lines that she crossed got uh, worse because back then the the company was still in and research and development mode, and and the blood she hadn't commercialized the blood tests, and so uh, patients' lives weren't at stake yet. But then she goes live with this uh, pseudo-technology in, in the fall of 2013. And uh, actually, uh, she's using, she and, and her boyfriend, Sonny Balwani, are, are using um, a Theranos device for only 12 of the tests on the menu, which contains 250 tests. And so the 238 other tests are run on commercial analyzers made by third parties, except they're not being run the way those manufacturers would like you to run them. Uh, they've modified them, uh, and in particular, they're diluting uh, the tiny finger stick samples to create more volume so that uh, the, these commercial analyzers can, can test the blood. And, uh, and that uh, alteration of the blood by diluting it uh, causes all sorts of problems and, and leads to unreliable results. Did anyone die as a result of, of her deceit? You know, I, I don't know the answer to that question. Uh, it's very hard uh, to establish a correlation between a, a blood test result and a, and a health outcome. Um, uh, what I do know is that uh, a dozen patients have sued Theranos for consumer fraud and they allege medical battery and that that's a putative class action that's um, winding its way through a federal court in Arizona. I also know that the, the company voided or corrected nearly a million blood test results. Um, and, um, and I also know uh, from ex-Theranos employees that the, the last laboratory director that Theranos had, who, who just recently left uh, the company as part of the last round of layoffs, was arguing for every single blood test that Theranos ever returned to a patient. 
to be avoided wow. be, because the, the quality control and the state of the lab were so bad that he argued we should just avoid everything. And so he was arguing for basically nearly 8 million blood test results to be voided. The company has only voided about a million. So Elizabeth Holmes is a, when you look back from today, back to when this all started, is essentially a serial liar. Um, there's the story, tell the story of, uh, of the Walgreens with the fire alarm. Oh, well, th- that's a story that I, that it didn't happen to me for one. And, and I learned about it after I'd actually, uh, finished my book. Um, I learned about it through Twitter when I saw, a a piece written in the first person by a reporter who at the time had been working for NPR. And uh, she started uh, digging into Theranos a little bit and wanting to do a story on, on the company uh, a while. I think it was a good six months before I ever started digging into the company. And she went as part of her reporting to, to visit the Walgreens store. I think it was in, in Palo Alto and started started asking patients questions and some of the patients were getting venous draws, which is, is the, the medical term for when, um, you know, you, you draw blood the traditional way, meaning with a hypodermic needle, uh, drawing the tubes of blood. Um, and she was, uh, not understanding why, uh, these patients weren't getting the, the vaunted finger stick test. And so as she asked more and more questions, uh, suddenly the, uh, the alarm, the fire alarm went off in the Walgreens and everyone had to evacuate. And uh, in hindsight, um, as she recounted in, in her piece recently, she suspects that perhaps uh, someone from Theranos, Theranos. Uh, did that yeah. to, to sort of stop her from uh, asking more questions and, and doing the story. What's the craziest Elizabeth Holmes story that you discovered in your reporting? Well, I mean, the the, the most personally shocking to me was when she went to our conference, the Wall Street Journal's uh, tech conference in Laguna Beach about 10 days after my first story was published. And uh, she did a Q&A with the journal's tech in this tech uh, editor and proceeded to lie again and again. And, and that um, was stunning to me because she was in front of a, an audience, in front of a public audience, and it was also being... Uh, streamed live on the Wall Street Journal website, and, and her lies uh, in that interview were demonstrably um, uh, false, and, and you could you know, easily prove it, and, and regulators and, and investigators for the SEC have since uh, shown that those, those lies, uh, that those were lies. I mean, one of them was, you know, uh, she, she went on for about 30 seconds about how Theranos absolutely did not dilute finger stick samples before running them on commercial analyzers. Um, and that, that lie was so egregious that one of my sources who, who was an ex laboratory director at Theranos texted me as she uttered it and said, can you believe she just said that? So seeing her lie, seeing her lie live, uh, on the, the computer screen was, was something else. It, it was really stunning. You are listening to inside the hive with Nick Bilton. Let's take a break from all these lies and deceit in Silicon Valley for one second to talk about one of our sponsors, OneBlade. If you've ever had a professional shave from the barbershop, you know how it can change not only how you look, but also how you feel. It gives you that baby smooth skin and the confidence of knowing you look great. Now you can get that same barbershop feeling at home with the OneBlade razor. 
I got one last week and have shaved with it, and it feels like one of those $100 shaves you get in a fancy barbershop, except you're doing it at home by yourself. It's incredible. One blade will give you the best shave of your life with no razor burn or ingrowing hairs, and I can attest to that because usually when I shave, I get both things. They have this product that has been obsessively engineered to be the perfect weight and the finest materials, such as their ultra-high-grade German stainless steel. Each one is hand-assembled and serial-numbered, and every one blade is backed with a full 60-day money-back guarantee and lifetime warranty. So if you want to get one of these or you want to get one for your father for Father's Day, go to this URL, onebladeshave.com slash hive. That's O-N-E, one, bladeshave.com slash hive. That's H-I-V-E. And for Father's Day, you'll receive a free Yeti Rambler. It's one of those really cool coffee mugs uh, with each razor blade purchase. Once again, go to onebladeshave.com slash hive. Do you think so? It's one thing for someone to lie about, you know, the number of downloads on their dating app, which I've experienced from my own reporting and, and about, you know, how good their photo filters are or how many... People even, you know, you could even go to Zuckerberg not being honest in front of Congress about the privacy settings and things. But it's a whole nother thing when you have 8 million people getting their blood tested and their entire lives depend on these results being accurate. This is the question that I'm sure you get asked all the time and it's the question I get asked all the time in relation to this story is, do you think that she is a sociopath? So at the end of my book in the... uh epilogue, I say that, um, you know, a sociopath is, is described as someone with no conscience. And uh, I also say, I'm going to leave it to the professional psychologist to decide whether Holmes fits the clinical profile. I, I think she absolutely has sociopathic uh, tendencies. And, and one of those tendencies is pathological lying. It's, uh, I, I believe this is uh, a woman who started telling small lies soon after she dropped out of Stanford when she founded her company, and the lies became uh, bigger and bigger, that the gap between what she promised investors uh, and where the technology was uh, became giant uh, to the po- point of eventually becoming you know, this, this massive fraud. And I think she's someone who uh, got used to telling lies so often, and the lies got uh, so much bigger that eventually um, the line between the lies and reality blurred for her. And, and it enabled her to kind of lose sight of what was a lie and what wasn't, and to therefore keep uttering these huge lies naturally. Do you think that, that there's, and look, I mean, I, I, I know you can't necessarily speak for her, but do you think that there's a part of her that feels guilty for what happened and all the people's lives that were lost, I mean, jobs that were lost and so on and, and lives that were affected, or does she feel more upset that she got caught? It's the latter for sure. I mean, she has shown uh, zero sign of, um, you know, feeling bad or, or expressing uh, sorrow uh, or admitting wrongdoing or, um, you know, saying, saying sorry to, to the patients uh, whose lives she endangered. Um, I know uh, from people who were working at Theranos in, until recently that uh, she doesn't feel that she did anything wrong to, to the extent that um, uh, mistakes were committed. She feels like her entourage w- led her astray. And, and in that sense, I think she's throwing her ex-boyfriend, Sonny Balwani, under the bus. And, and she feels that, that the, the, the bad guy is me, that, that I'm the bad guy for having you know, brought her company down. 
Um, and, and uh, you know, one person in, in particular who, who left the company recently says that she has this uh, deeply ingrained uh, uh, sense of martyrdom. She, she sees herself as sort of a Joan of Arc uh, who's being persecuted. That's insane on so many levels. Um, all right, so let's take a little break from her and move to her boyfriend, Sonny Balwani. Uh, so Sonny and her meet in China, right, when she's on a school trip. How old is she at the time when that happened? She's 18 uh, when that happens. Uh, it's the summer between her um, senior year in high school and her freshman year at Stanford. So Sonny, when he joins the company, um, is considered and called kind of by, by employees the enforcer. What are some of the things that he did that were enforcement-like? Um, he was uh, incredibly arrogant um, and, and told uh, people that, you know, uh, he could read a book uh, about, say, lab testing and uh, two days later do their jobs, you know, better than, than they did them. Combined with this this arrogance and this hubris, he was very um, intimidating in his demeanor, threatening, um, and uh, paranoid about uh, Theranos' supposed uh, technological advances and trade secrets leaking out. And um, he also fired people, uh, anyone you know who who started expressing concerns or qualms. Uh, he fired people so often that it gave rise to a new expression. When uh, someone uh, was su suddenly no longer appearing at the office, uh, people surmised that Sonny had fired them, and, and they would say, Sonny disappeared so-and-so. Um, <laughs> Sounds very mafioso-like. Right. Um, and, and, uh, and then, you know, in addition to Sonny, it must be said that there was also uh, David Boys, the yeah. famous lawyer who yeah. was Theranos' outside counsel starting in 2011. And he was like a scarecrow for employees because they figured that if they... Uh, started raising questions to the board or internally uh, to her or Sonny or after they left the company, if they went to the press or to regulators, that the, the company would come after them and that David Boyes, this feared litigator, perhaps, you know, our country's most famous attorney would be the one coming after them. And Boyes came after you uh, when you were writing your first story. Was was he in on the lies? Did he know that it was all made up or did he not? You know, I don't know the answer to that question. I suspect that he did not, um, or at least that, that he had a very cursory uh, and partial understanding of what was going on in, in the Theranos clinical lab. Uh, I, don't, I don't think he realized that m when I first started interacting with him and he came to our offices at the Journal in June 2015 and, and um, with his associates from Boyce Schiller and Heather King, who was a ex-Boyce Schiller attorney who had just become general counsel of Theranos. And when they, they acted very aggressively toward us, essentially, you know, threatening us with litigation, I don't think he knew the extent of the shenanigans in the lab at that point. The thing that I have such a hard time understanding is that there are, at one point in time, what, close to a thousand employees there. Um, That's right. And... and it, you know, if I work for a company, you know, a Vanity Fair, there are a few dozen people. Like if if one person is, is you know, stealing something or making something up, or it would take about 
a, a few days for everyone to, to know what was going on, especially if everyone's job relied on that person and vice versa. It, it was all so intertwined. You've got a company at Theranos where you have the lab results and the blood testing and all right. these things that are so intertwined. Do these thousand employees not know what's going on? A, a lot of them didn't know, um, and, and uh, Elizabeth and Sonny really uh, uh, kind of kept the, the company or part, the different parts of the company compartmentalized in, in silos. And, um, you know, the, the headquarters, uh, the different parts of the headquarters building in Palo Alto, uh, you needed key cards to, to get into to certain parts, and you certainly needed uh, key cards. In fact, in the, the last iteration of the lab in Newark, California, which was uh, where Theranos's big manufacturing facility uh, was located across San Francisco Bay, um, you, you had to uh, be an authorized employee of the lab, and, and to enter the lab, you had to have your... Uh, uh, you put your fingers against the fingerprint scanner. So no one who was not wow. a lab employee was allowed to go near the lab. And, and so tons of employees, when my first story came out, I would say a majority of the company didn't realize uh, that what I was reporting was true because, because they hadn't been allowed near that lab and they didn't know that the Edison machine only uh, was used for a handful of tests and that, the, and that Theranos had hacked these Siemens machines and, and modified them to accommodate small samples. This is the point where, this is uh, when I wrote the piece about you and Theranos and Elizabeth Holmes in the magazine and the lead of the piece, which is I, I think maybe my favorite part of the story because I get to say the words I'm about to say, is that your piece comes out and Elizabeth Holmes and Balwani call an all-hands meeting in the cafeteria, and they talk about how the piece was bullshit and made up. And it's Balwani, I believe, if I'm, if you correct me if I'm wrong, who starts a chant where he says, fuck you, carry you. And then everyone starts chanting, fuck you. Fuck you, carry you. And, <laughs> and actually, there was a, um, uh, a history and a pattern of chanting, fuck you, at Theranos. Um, it had happened several times before. Uh, the previous time it had happened uh, had been three months before when Theranos had gotten good news from the FDA, which was that its uh, herpes test off a finger stick sample had been approved by the agency. And um, uh, Elizabeth and Sonny were, were very proud and defiant during that meeting in the cafeteria in July of 2015. And at the end of the meeting, uh, Sonny led employees in a fuck you chant. And at that point, the fuck you chant had been directed at LabCorp and Quest, the, the dominant players in the lab industry, uh, and and it was sort of Sonny and Elizabeth's way of thumbing their nose at the competition. Um, when when my piece came out three mo three months later, and and uh, the funk, fuck you chant was uh, chanted again. Um, a uh, I, the version of the story that I was told is that a senior hardware engineer um, asked Sonny to lead them in a chant uh, without specifying what the chant was and and of course everyone knew what he was talking about and Sonny um you know um was happy to do so and 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 at that point they they started directing the fuck you at me and then they made a, a th as the reporting continued they made a video game a space invaders video game of with your head as one of the invaders you had to kill was that right that's right and so uh the the theranos employee who um program that game and, and actually sent me a copy recently uh, wanted me uh, in media interviews if it came up to um, specify that uh, Sonny and Elizabeth weren't a part of it, that they hadn't you know uh, ordered him to do it, that he did it of his own initiative. 
And this was back in the spring of 2016 when he and many other employees still felt that my reporting was wrong, that I was a, a journalist who was just bent on bringing this company down. And um, they had a, a party during Memorial Day uh, week, and um, he created this game to sort of uh, uh, boost the morale of his uh, colleagues in Newark, California. And so it's a, it's a version of the Atari game, Space Invaders, where you have my head that falls uh, from the top of the screen, so I'm the invader. And then you have the machine gun at the bottom that uh, is the mini lab, uh, the, the Theranos uh, blood testing device, or at least the last uh, version of it. And then the, the, the mini lab is uh, spewing these uh, bullets and the bullets are the nanotainers, the little uh, blood vials that, that Theranos used to, to collect finger stick blood. While I'm sure that Sonny Balwani and Elizabeth Holmes didn't uh, tell the employee to make it, I'm sure they, they found a lot of glee in seeing it being made. Well, I think in, in a way it, it spoke to how they um, uh, treated dissent, yeah. you know, and, and uh, how they coached their workforce to treat dissent. Um, they were always right, and, and any doubts emitted uh, were seeded by competitors uh, or people, you know, who were out to get them. Um, and uh, it was sort of a, an us versus them mentality at all times. Um, and I think, but I think the problem is that uh, a lot of employees didn't realize the cheating that was going on in the lab, and so um, uh, Elizabeth and Sonny were were. Uh, leading this this culture of us versus them while knowing fully that us, we are cheating and, and we're cutting corners and, and we're putting patients in harm's way. This is Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. So a few weeks ago, we had a sponsor on the show, Away Travel, that sells suitcases. I went along to awaytravel.com slash hive and got my discount code and ordered a new suitcase. And I have to say, it is incredible. It's amazing. It's truly the greatest thing I have purchased in the last couple of years. And I'm not over-exaggerating when I say that. Sure, you're probably saying to yourself, wait, I have a suitcase. How good could a new suitcase be? You have no idea. One of the things that they're able to do is they're able to cut costs by cutting out the middleman because they sell directly to you on the interwebs. They have several different sizes, including the carry-on, which is approved to fit above your cabin seat on an airplane. They have the bigger carry-on, the medium, the large, for those of us that are going away for a month or two to try to get away from the Trump administration. They also have a kid's one, which I bought for my little three-year-old, and he loves it. He walks with it around the house all the time. The suitcases have a patent-pending compression system help for overpackers, just like me. Uh, They have four 360-degree spinner wheels that guarantee a smooth ride. That may sound like it's not a big deal. Trust me, when you are running through the airport, this suitcase is like a Mini Cooper driving alongside next to you. You can push it, you can pull it, you can twizzle it. The best part of these suitcases is that they have a built-in cell phone charger to charge your phones, your tablets, your Kindles, whatever it is. You can charge your phone five times on one single charge of this little suitcase charger thingamajig. Um, I was in D.C. last week, and I found myself rushing through the airport with my phone almost dead. I felt like I was James Bond with some secret MI6 gadget that no one else had. They give you a 100-day trial so you can live with the suitcase, vibe with it, travel with it, Instagram it, whatever you want. And if you don't like it, you'll be able to return it for a full refund. But I can assure you that you will love it. 
Right now, Away Travel is offering a special discount for listeners of Inside the Hive. You get $20 off a suitcase when you visit awaytravel.com slash hive and use the promo code HIVE during your checkout. Once again, you get $20 off your suitcase when you visit awaytravel.com slash hive and use the promo code HIVE. There are so many to choose from. They come in all different shapes and sizes, all different materials, and you can charge your devices on the go. Once again, $20 off, awaytravel.com slash hive. When you kind of look back at all of the reporting and, and these stories of the, you know, the, the video games and the chants and the, the lying on stage and on TV and everything, which part of the story would you say is the most jaw-dropping and which part of the story, it's a two-part question, uh, would you say um, for you when you were kind of back doing all this reporting, uh, there was the moment where you were just like, holy shit. I mean, I think one of the, the most egregious episodes for sure was when Tyler Schultz, who was one of my confidential sources and, and for uh, those who haven't followed the Theranos saga, he was the grandson, is the grandson of George Schultz, the famous former secretary of state during the Reagan administration, who, who crafted the Reagan administration's foreign policy and is credited by many with essentially winning the Cold War. Uh, he's in his 90s now, but he remains a, a very uh, well-respected uh, uh, figure in Republican circles. And uh, he happens to live right off the uh, Stanford campus, and he's always been passionate about science and uh, was introduced to Elizabeth in 2011 joined her board and became one of her biggest champions. And uh, his grandson came to work at Theranos for eight months in uh, late 2013 and early 2014 and uh, became convinced that the company was, was committing fraud and tried to alert his grandfather to it. His grandfather wouldn't believe him, so he had ended up leaving. And then a year later, when I started poking around, he and I made contact and he became one of my confidential sources. And when... Um, when I started uh, confronting uh, Theranos with what I'd uncovered in my reporting in the spring of 2015, they started uh, counterattacking. And one of the things they did is they ambushed Tyler at his grandfather George's house with two boys, Schiller, Flexner lawyers uh, who were hiding upstairs and, um, and who proceeded to come down. And, and uh, one of them in particular by the name of Mike Brill, uh, really um, was very aggressive and kind of like an attack dog, uh, telling uh, Tyler that he knew that uh, he was a source of mine and, and that he had to admit it and that he had to uh, sign documents, um, um, you know, recanting. And um, Tyler had to withstand this enormous pressure in the presence of his own grandfather and his step-grandmother, um, and there was another scene again at the house the next morning. And, and uh, you know, these attorneys were, were acting at Elizabeth Holmes's behest. Um, she was um, absolutely aware of what was going on because after uh, the, the confrontation that evening, um, when uh, George Schultz finally ushered the, those two lawyers out of his house, he called her and he said, that's not what we'd agreed upon. We'd agreed that, that Tyler would just be presented with a short statement reiterating that he would um, uh, abide by his confidentiality obligations and instead you, you essentially ambushed him with these very aggressive lawyers. 
and so um, uh, Elizabeth uh, fully knew what was going, not only did she know what was going on, she directed these lawyers to, to behave the way they, they did. Thankfully for me, uh, Tyler um, got legal representation and, and then uh, continued to endure uh, many more months of pressure and threats. Um, at one point, uh, I learned that uh, one of the lawyers, Mike Brill, um, uh, threatened to bankrupt his entire family. Uh, if he didn't sign the documents that Theranos wanted him to, to sign. Tyler never caved, and um, in, in large part, thanks to him, I was able to go to press with my investigation in October 2015. Did Tyler and his grandfather make up? or? So um, I'm going to be a, a little coy, but a, a good source of mine uh, tells me that um, uh, recently uh, there was a, a gathering at the uh, uh, Schultz household, at George Schultz's house, um, and that George told members of the family he had read the SEC charges um, and had discovered uh, the, the magnitude of the lies and of the deception and that he'd had no idea that any of this was going on and that he now realized that Tyler had been right all along and, and he said that Tyler was a hero. When you think about the board, uh, this was to, to me, I remember when, when I first read your story uh, and looked at the board and totally scratched my head it's it was a dozen white men uh all incredibly successful in their time uh henry kissinger and so on would they you know when i think about those jim people, mattis our current secretary jim, of defense jim uh, mattis yeah sam nunn bill frist william perry secretary of defense under clinton george schultz um these a- these admiral are roughhead these guys are these are not uh, they're smart guys. I mean, you know, the, um, among the smartest, would they? Was the wool being pulled over their eyes too, or would they, were they just not asking the right questions? Did they just believe everything she told them? Were they are they guilty here too? I mean, the wool was being pulled over their eyes. They they had no expertise whatsoever in medicine or laboratory science. And that and was we, intentional. On and her that part. was in, that was intentional on, on Elizabeth's part. Uh, she recruited. You know, she, she was after two things. She was after people who wouldn't be able to ask the right questions that, you know, um, uh, would ferret out that, that she was lying, but she was also after their credibility. And these were all, um, you know, former uh, statesmen or military commanders with uh, unbelievable resumes. Um, and so she was looking for the credibility that came with their reputations. And um, uh, it worked because, you know, uh, uh, some investors like the San Francisco Hedge Fund Partner Fund Management, uh, which invested $96.1 million in Theranos in, in early 2014, they tried to do some due diligence and they were outright lied to. Um, and so the, the lies, you know, uh, led them astray. But uh, it must also be said that they were impressed by the, the uh, makeup of this board. They thought, you know, these larger than life figures how could anything untoward be going on at a Silicon Valley startup with that kind of a sterling board? Not to mention the fact that uh, guarding the shop is, uh, you know, the country's most famous attorney, David Boyce. One of my sources, back when I did the magazine piece, uh, had said that uh, that they, that Elizabeth knew how to work these older men in a way that was pretty impressive. What did she do? Well, you know, this is sort of a controversial topic nowadays amid the Me Too movement, but it's undeniable that uh, her marks 
again and again were older men. It, it started with uh, Channing Robertson, her uh, Stanford Engineering School professor, um, who she persuaded to uh, back her when she uh, founded Theranos in late 2003, early 2004, and who joined the board of the company, accompanied her to, to pitches with uh, uh, VCs. Uh, then she um, uh, charmed Donald L. Lucas, who was a pretty famous uh, venture capitalist who, among uh, other things, groomed Larry Ellison and helped him take Oracle uh, public in the 80s. Then he started uh, developing Alzheimer's disease in 2010, 2011, at which point she met George Schultz and she wrapped George around her finger. And he then introduced her to all his buddies at the Hoover Institution, the think tank on the Stanford campus. And she, um, she wowed them. I don't you know, necessarily think that it was a, a sexual thing by any means. I think it was a combination of her uh, intelligence, a combination of her charisma, her uh, bold vision, her, her energy, all of that uh, in one package uh, led these men to, to really believe in her and, and want to join her company's board. Of course, it helped that she also granted them uh, a lot of shares uh, of Theranos. What did they get? How much did they get for? Uh, they got. They each got several million dollars worth of shares, uh, which for, today for worth several joining, which million are, pennies, or worth <laughs> nothing zero, zero, zero today. Yep. Um, wh- uh, I, 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 I'm going to go back to this because I still can't get my head around it. When she's lying to all these people, and she at the same time thinks that she is like a Joan of Arc martyr, how does she reconcile those two things? I, it's, it's so hard for me to understand someone who is out there literally blatantly, blatantly lying, uh, and yet she is, she thinks that she's the victim. Well, you know, it, it goes back to uh, her modeling herself after jobs and after the traditional Silicon Valley tech industry. Um, there's a, as I say in my book, there's a term that was uh, coined in the early 80s, uh, vaporware, that describes um, either computer software or hardware that's announced with great fanfare by a company and then is either never delivered upon or uh, is delivered really without uh, the great features that were promised. And um, a lot of companies, you know, engaged in this practice in the, in the history of Silicon Valley. And um, a lot of... Uh, tech entrepreneurs engaged in the practice and and kind of uh, engaged in fake it until you make it. And Steve Jobs, you know, uh, was one of those guys. But um, it's it's more okay to do it in tech where mostly you have got a product revolving around software. So when you get your new uh, iPhone or the the latest version of iOS on your iPhone, um, there's often a bug in it, and and then uh, the bugs get fixed, and and the the next downloads, and you know, our lives aren't really interrupted or altered by that, um, and when we've learned to accept it, um, but you can't do that uh, with medical devices, and I think because obviously because the product is used to make health decisions and lives are at stake, I think Elizabeth either uh, conflated the two to the point that she completely lost sight at an early stage that her product was actually a medical product, or she just um, refused to realize that the end user uh, was not, you know, an iPhone customer or a software customer, but a patient. Um, And yet, at the same time, when she was at the height of her fame, she often... um, 
um, you know, said that, that her, her invention was going to revolutionize he healthcare because it would allow for earlier diagnoses. And, and because people would get their blood tested more often because it was easier and cheaper and, and therefore um, fewer people would have to say goodbye to loved ones too soon. And so she, she appealed to that um, uh, empathy, to, you know, she, she, she played on that uh, uh, chord and, and I, I think it was just a canned sort of rehearsed catchphrase and she never really had any empathy um, because otherwise how how could you and and let happen what what happened? She uh, let's do a little quick game before we wrap up here of where are they now? Uh, we're going to end with Elizabeth. So, but let's Sunny Balwani, uh, her co-conspirator and uh, and boyfriend at the time, now ex-boyfriend. Right. So for a while he was um, he went underground and and a lot of uh, ex-employees of Theranos speculated that he had left the country to elude uh, investigators because there's a criminal investigation that's still go ongoing, spearheaded by the U.S. Attorney's Office in San Francisco. And um, actually, uh, he was still hanging around Palo Alto and Atherton where he owned a big house. And um, uh, I was able to confirm that when I learned from Tyler Schultz that Sonny had appeared at his deposition in the partner fund litigation, the, the San Francisco hedge fund that had invested almost $100 million in Theranos sued it for fraud. And um, Tyler was deposed in that case, and Sonny uh, showed up for the deposition, which is very unusual. And uh, Showed up just to watch? It was clear that he was there to try to intimidate uh, Tyler. Um, and he's since done that in other um, strands of litigation involving Theranos. And so he, he's now uh, uh, done it several times. Do you, do you think he'll go to jail? I think that the, um, well, I know, uh, based on what my sources are telling me, that the criminal investigation is very advanced, that uh, uh, criminal indictments of Sonny and Elizabeth are a distinct possibility, if not, you know, a real uh, likelihood. And uh, then, of course, the uh, government will have to prove its case uh, if it goes to trial. But if they do, then, then yeah, I think those two could be looking at prison time. Uh, David Boyes, is he still involved in any way, shape, or form? Or No, David Boyes uh, stopped doing, and his firm stopped doing legal work for Theranos in uh, the spring of 2016. Elizabeth stopped listening to him and started... What, was, what, what a device was he giving her that she was going to... I, I'm told that by that point, uh, it had been, you know, eight, nine months after my investigation had come out, and he had done enough... Uh, research and, and his firm had do, done enough interviews uh, and gone over documents to realize that, um, you know, uh, Theranos was liable for uh, some lies to investors. And so uh, he felt that um, the company should proactively go to the SEC and try to negotiate a, a, a consent decree. Uh, but Elizabeth Holmes at that point had stopped listening to him and, and had hired a new law firm, Wilmer Hale, uh, which replaced uh, Boyce Schiller Flexner, and that is actually still the main law firm that today uh, Theranos is using. Um, he uh, subsequently left the board of Theranos, I think it was in uh, March or April of 2017. So he's cut all ties with uh, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Do you think he regrets the things he did? Has he ever apologized by the, to the way he treated you? Or I have reason to believe that... Uh, that he regrets his involvement with Theranos and that uh, he now realizes that it was a fraud. 
And uh, the most concrete uh, hint that, that I have uh, to point to is um, a quote he gave to New York Magazine, which wrote a, a story about my book uh, about a week ago. And, and in, that, in his quote, he called my uh, reporting important and the fact that I had uncovered this scandal uh, important work. And so I took it as a tacit admission that, that he was acknowledging I had been right all along. That must be nice considering that he came in and threatened to destroy your entire life in the Wall Street Journal newsroom <laughs> a few years earlier. It was vindicating. And in the other part of his quote, he said that I was over-dramatizing uh, in my book, uh, The Events. And, and I can tell you that I didn't over-dramatize anything. I that, don't believe uh, you over-dramatized a single <laughs> solitary word. Uh, I, I told it exactly as it happened. <clears throat> yeah, completely. Um, all right, so let's let's wrap up with, with, with my favorite sociopath, Elizabeth. Uh, where is she now? Is she ever going to go away? And what... What happens? Because she doesn't seem like she's ever going to go away. So in the spring of 2016, about eight months after my first story came out, um, she was on the cusp of being banned from uh, the laboratory industry. And so she realized that, um, uh, you know, someone had to had to uh, pay and there had to there had to be some consequence. And so she threw Sonny under the bus. She fired him. And uh, she broke up with him. She moved out of the big house they'd been living together in in Atherton and uh, moved to a rental in Los Altos Hills. Um, I'm told she's actually now uh, in San Francisco that she recently moved to a new apartment in, in San Francisco. But amazingly, uh, she is still running Theranos, which is a shell of what the company it had been. Uh, uh, it, it long ago vacated the expensive uh, headquarters just off the Stanford campus that it had occupied uh, on Page Mill Road. And uh, now the, the two dozen employees left work uh, in Newark, California, in this uh, manufacturing facility that Theranos owns, or leases, rather. And, um, you know, the, the, the countdown is on for when the, the company uh, goes bankrupt, and I expect that to happen by early August. And and I'm looking and waiting to see what happens with the criminal, criminal investigation. It's possible that... Uh, federal prosecutors will will announce um, uh, something uh, either before then or or shortly after. If you did, you ever talk to Elizabeth for the book? No, I, I tried uh, sporadically. I uh, obviously before we ever published my first story, I, I tried to speak to her for five and a half months before we went to press with that story, and then again sporadically went back and asked for interviews. She always uh, denied me. An interview, and uh, in the fall of 2016, when I went on book leave, I tried again, and um, uh, she just wouldn't. Uh, she just wouldn't grant me an interview. So, last two questions. One is when you think about her and the lies and the way she kind of came after you, um, and the way she treated her employees and and the patients and so on. Do you get angry? Do you like? Is, it, is there a feeling of just like? bitter anger towards this person and what that person has done in the universe? There, there was a little bit of that, I'd say, uh, while I was reporting the story and then in the immediate aftermath. Um, uh, what I feel... Because I get angry just hearing <laughs> you tell these stories. I, I feel proud that, uh, thanks to my work, that the, the company was driven out of the lab testing business and, and uh, you know, it, it had to close its two labs in October of 2016, and from that point on, it could no longer affect the health of patients. That, that was a really a big victory for me um, and for, for the public health. Um, I still, part, a part of me still feels that um, 
for uh, you know the the, the right uh, punishment to be apportioned uh, given uh, the crime and the wrongdoing. There there needs uh, to be um, you know that that criminal charges do need to be filed and that there there needs to be a criminal trial because um, like many. I feel that the the SEC uh, resolution uh, was really a slap on the wrist. I mean, fining her a half million dollars and banning her from being a director or officer in a public company for 10 years. I mean, she's not even running a public company. She's still running a private startup. And she, uh, based on what she's telling friends um, and colleagues, she's about to start a new company. Do you know what the new company is going to be? I, I don't know any any details about it, but I know that she's told several people that she is going to incorporate and start a new company. All right, so here's my last question. Imagine for a moment that I'm Elizabeth Holmes and you're sitting across from me, Elizabeth Holmes, and you get to ask one question. What would it be? How could you rationalize what you did? And, and namely, how could you rationalize lies that put uh, patient's health in jeopardy. And her response would be, what are you talking about? I didn't do anything. <laughs> uh, John, this is, uh, it's been fascinating as always. I encourage everyone to read the book. It reads like a murder mystery thriller. You can't put it down once you pick it up. Um, the title is bad blood secrets and lies in a Silicon Valley startup. John, where can people find you on the internets? Uh, they can find me on Twitter at, John Carriaru with the J and the C capitalized. They can email me. Um, do do people give people's, out emails pe- on this yeah, podcast? Yeah, you, you can. Most people don't. Um, they, most people, tell, you know, you can do whatever you want. First name dot last name at wsj.com and they can find my book in any bookstore near you or on Amazon. Or barnesandnoble.com or wherever you right. like. It, it is a great book. Uh, um, it's really, really a fascinating read. I'm just going to wrap up here. Thank you to my guest, John Carew, um, and, of course, to uh, John Kelly, my editor of Vanity Fair. If you enjoyed this conversation, be sure to listen and subscribe to other great episodes of Inside the Hive with Nick Bilton. You can find these on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or anywhere you get your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review while you're there. Will you tell these people to leave a review? Leave a review. A five-star review. review. How important are reviews for books, too? Oh, they're they're crucial. Yeah, you got to leave a review, people. It's really important. And if you don't have anything nice to say, forget it. Don't leave a review at all. Thanks to the folks at Cadence 13 for their production work. And thanks to my sponsors, Away Travel and One Blade. Please support them the same way you support this podcast. I will see you or hear you all next week. Three, two, one. Political Breakdown is a daily politics podcast from KQED in San Francisco that goes deep into the issues you care about. I'm Scott Schaefer. And I'm Marisa Lagos. Look, 2024 is going to get weird. Who decides when there's been an insurrection or not? We're still in the innovation phase of AI. And that is where you see that they're not actually being equitable and trying to build a utopia where we can all use drugs happily together. (laughs) But whatever happens this election year, the KQED politics team is in this with you. Political Breakdown. Find it wherever you listen to podcasts.